2: Well, yesterday, Scott Minard, who's the global chief investment officer of Guggenheim Partners, came out with one of the most bearish notes I have ever seen yet uh, in this cycle. He first started saying that the coronavirus is a looming economic problem, but sort of indicated that that was just one of many of them, and then wrote this, I have never in my career seen anything as crazy as what's going on right now. I have said before that we've entered the silly season, but I stand corrected. We are in the ludicrous season. <laughs> Axel Merck joining us now, President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments. Do you agree, Axel?
3: We ended, ended the ludicrous season a long, long time ago. The, the, the question is, is, we still need to live and make a living and, and try to make sense of, of some of it, right? Um, and, and, and so, uh, and, and first, we, we need to understand what's happening and so forth. But let's in the context of the virus, right, we've always had shocks. Um, we know that usually markets were the worst when we've most talked about them. So the fact that we're talking about the virus probably means that uh, we're not at the peak yet because otherwise you'll talk to other even bigger experts, right? Um, but but in all seriousness, um, the U.S. is more isolated from a lot of what's happening here. and And so that may well be one of the reasons why the U.S. is doing comparatively well. And so we are focused on all kinds of other things. And I just might to remind people, um, we were talking about World War Three at the beginning of this year, which didn't quite materialize. So mm-hmm. markets have a habit of moving on, and with interest rates as low as they are, we quote-unquote discount the short-term things, and then so we live happily ever after.
1: In terms of living happily ever after, is that driven s- simply by the fact that there's so much cash sloshing around the global system with uh, you know central banks, uh, very, very accommodative?
3: Well, one way to answer your question, if interest rates were at uh, 6% in the U.S., markets wouldn't be as happy. I mean, from that point of view, certainly it's correct. Um, one one minor issue I have with, with, with that statement is that every time a crisis hits, we, we lower rates. And I was arguing last year that lower rates don't exactly help the trade war. Right. Similarly, a rate cut doesn't cure an illness. And so I don't think that rates is everything that's driving it, but one thing, of course, that, that takes place when we have money printing is we take perceived risk out of the market. Risk premium get compressed, and ultimately what it does, it, it doesn't foster healthy capital allocation. Uh, and, but at the same time, um, yes, I mean, if we had a more serious disruption, and, and right now, by all means, there are certain local disruptions conferences get canceled and there's a fallout from that. Supply chains get disrupted. But big business is able to deal with some of that. So it's, it's not as simple as saying, hey, um, the central banks are, are foaming here, the, the runway, and therefore everything everything is fine. I, I do think central banks play a role in this, are a very important piece of the puzzle, but it's not everything that's going on.
2: I want to pick up on what you said with respect to misallocating capital. People are looking at how companies are using extra cash they're generating to buy back their shares, pay out dividends. They're not using it to invest in their businesses, necessarily. We're seeing capital expenditures continue to decline. How long can this continue uh, with an expansion versus having it bleed into the economy in a negative way?
3: Well, last time we talked about Goldilocks was in 2004, 2005. It didn't end too well, but it lasted for several more years. It's very difficult to, to time those sort of things. And, and so the, the concern I have is that everybody talks about our economy slowing down. I'm actually more concerned about the other end. It's not the most likely scenario. But what if all this accommodative monetary policy, the fiscal stimulus we have, uh, and presumably we're going to get a Chinese stimulus in, in due course, is actually going to Get us a hot economy with inflation. Everybody says it's a good problem to have. But how do you tighten monetary policy when, we have so, when corporations have gotten weaker, when they, they stretch their balance sheets? We cannot afford to have higher rates. It's one of the reasons we have these low rates. But what if something goes wrong at the other end of the spectrum, that things are too good, so to speak, um, then the Fed needs to tighten and everything crumbles, right? And so a credit-driven society um, is a more, quote-unquote, efficient society. Greenspan used to say that. But it's a more fragile society in some ways because when things go wrong, people fall through the cracks. And, and so, yes, we can sustain this for an extended period. I'm not convinced that this is the best way to move forward. But then again, I'm just an observer here, right? Or a humble participant in the markets, I'm I'm not the one calling the shots. So we just have to deal with the cards we're dealt with. So Axel, just switching gears a little bit, looking at commodities, there's
1: an area that has certainly felt the pain maybe reflecting some of the global economic uncertainty uh, maybe tied to the coronavirus. One commodity that is not uh, worried seems to be gold. So we're seeing a lot of uh, good movement in gold. What is your thoughts about gold here given some of those uncertainties?
3: Well, we've long looked at and invest in the gold market, the the one thing we observe is that investors want to have the cake and eat it. And what I mean with that is that usually when you have a crisis, people would run to cash. But maybe because people have had such amazing gains over the years, they rather diversify to gold or even more volatile gold mining so that with a small addition to the portfolio, they can get Diversification. I'm not suggesting everybody should do that, but we see that certainly happening. We do some of that ourselves um, because it's a ultimately cash isn't all that attractive, and so that's why people use those sort of things. What we see in that sector is that uh, because the price of gold is moving, uh, it attracts a lot of traders, and so speculative positions are at, at record highs and so forth. Uh, the, those speculators love it when things are moving. Those are in there. The diversification folks are in there. The folks who say, well, whatever's going to happen in the medium term, can't end too well. Those investors are there, so, so we see that there is an, an, a really an early wave um, of investors coming back in, and on a gold mining side, companies are far more prudent um, with uh, with how they manage these mines than they had in, had been in the last cycle. Just
2: uh, about 30 seconds here. You're dealt. You're dealt with the. You deal with the cards that you're dealt. What are you doing? How, what are you What are you allocating your money to?
3: We haven't changed all that much. We we bought a little bit in China at the during uh, the, the Chinese New Year and what we to the extent we could in U.S. markets, but but that's really just play money. And again, that's not investment advice here. But but beyond that, we've really stuck to our guns and tried to look at the the longer term picture. And so yes, we have exposure to risk assets, but yes, we do have significant assets also to allocations to something something like gold and gold mining.
1: Axel Merck, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts and commentary. Axel Merck, President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments based in San Francisco. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Tara LaChapelle. She covers entertainment, telecom, deals, all that kind of fun stuff. She joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tara, it looks like this Sprint T-Mobile deal is is finally gonna get done. But what's interesting about this deal is the delay, and it's been delayed and delayed and delayed, hasn't been so much at the federal level But at the state level, what's going on here?
4: Yeah, so it's a really unique situation where this deal that I think most people for a long time thought was never possible just because T-Mobile and Sprint are such close competitors and there's only two other real national rivals in their market. So when the FCC and the Justice Department both approved the deal with kind of minimal concessions. Uh, It really surprised people that the Trump administration was on board with this. And then um, about, you know, a couple dozen U.S. states came out against it and decided to sue to try to stop the deal. And the number of states had kind of dwindled as different ones kind of struck individual concessions for their own state constituents along the way, but New York and California were really persistent and resolved to try to stop this deal, and in the end, uh, 14 state attorneys general were part of this trial, and even though they lost this week, I think it could have a little bit of a chilling effect on some deals like this.
2: Yeah, well, you pointed out that dealmakers face a 52-headed monster, the idea being that all of the different uh, attorneys general could get together or independently go after certain deals. What's the precedent for this? I mean, how active are the states typically when it comes to blocking deals?
4: We don't really see them need to be active in the sense of going all the way to trial to try to stop a deal, because usually that would be the role of the Justice Department, um, like we saw with AT&T, Time Warner. And, you know, when states object to different things, what they'll do is work with The companies on their, you know, individually behind the scenes and try to get concessions just for their own states. So, like the New York State AG may go to T-Mobile and say, "Well, we need you to do this for us if we're going to support the deal." And some states did do that in the end, but it was really interesting that these 14 states didn't. And you know, even though the judge ended up siding with T-Mobile and Sprint, I had been talking with uh, John Stevens, the chief financial officer at AT and T last month, right after their their own earnings report. And you know, the trial was still ongoing at the time. We didn't know what the ruling was going to be, but when we were talking about the impact of this case, he said, you know, it's a three-headed monster now, meaning you have the FCC, the DOJ, and now the states that you have to appease if you want to do a big telecom or media merger, and he said, in fact, maybe I should call it a 52-headed monster, so that's where that came from, (laughs) and it's really interesting because I think a lot of people look at this deal and say, well, if T-Mobile Sprint can get done, basically any mega merger can get done now, and you know, that might be true. Um, unfortunately. But at the same time, I think that a lot of executives and deal makers are looking at this and say, do we want to go through the process of a potentially long trial and PR fight with a bunch of really powerful state attorneys general, like Letitia James in New York, who, you know, really didn't back down from this. It's
1: interesting. It seems like there's uneven application of kind of antitrust issues. I think back to the deal that you and I spent so much time talking about, the AT&T Time Warner deal. That deal, it just, you know, the Justice Department just would not let go of that deal. And um, so is there a sense, is there a a sense on Wall Street and among the merger lawyers of Is it a good time to do a big deal or not a good time to do it? I
4: think it's hard to know. I mean, I think if you aren't in sort of the, um, you know, one of the companies that's been targeted by Trump directly, maybe you're safer than others. You know, we saw this week, the Federal Trade Commission is trying to crack down on some past deals that the big tech giants Mm. did. And you know, that makes sense, but at the same time, it's hard not to notice that these are also companies where Trump has his own personal grievances. So there is a little bit of a double standard there. The Time Warner AT&T trial definitely stands out, you know, a case where the DOJ yep. was against it, but supporting this one. You said, thank God, or <laughs>
2: unfortunately. The idea being the uh, that, that a merger like T-Mobile and Sprint is not good. Is that just because you expect the phone bills to go up?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think it's hard to look at this deal and and think that it's going to be anything but that that as a result. That, you know, these companies that have been competing with each other so intensely for the last few years, unable to raise prices and having to keep their plans so competitive, they're not going to have to do that anymore. So why would they keep prices low? Well, the counter
2: argument is they have to actually build out a 5G network. They don't have the capital to do it unless they have the market share and the and the pricing power to raise more money and so this will actually end up benefiting people by creating a more robust infrastructure. What's your response to that? It's a little that?
4: bit of a stretch. There's a lot of caveats and in the case of Sprint, yes, they they needed more funding, but at the same time I think it was probably likely Sprint would have get, gotten bought by someone else down the road. They have so many subscribers and so much valuable spectrum. And you know, it's true that T-Mobile having this bigger scale means that they'll be able to kind of spread those network costs across a bigger subscriber base, but AT&T and Verizon already have that big scale and their costs aren't any lower. Their prices aren't any lower, I should say. So I, I just really don't buy the argument. When you're going from four to three competitors, it is anti-competitive. And so I thought that it was interesting that the judge disagreed with that.
2: Tara LaChapelle, always insightful uh, and wonderful columns. You can read them all at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N. Go on the Bloomberg. Tara LaChapelle is a columnist for us uh, with Bloomberg Opinion. When we talk about the melt up or the skyrocket up, if you take a look at a longer time series of the US equity market, really when you dive in, it is about the rally in a select group of shares, the FANG shares, the big uh, fan mag, actually, because we're <laughs> yes. going to be speaking about one of them. Apple and Microsoft combine account for more than 10% of the S&P's value, which raises even more scrutiny of these companies because they are becoming systemically important in a way that few others have in history. Joining us now, Anurag Rana, Senior IT and Software Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I wanna drill into Microsoft in particular. Uh, A couple of interesting developments when it comes to their cloud development. Can you give us a sense of what the latest is there in the broader context of the import of this this company uh, within the sphere of the US? equity markets
0: yeah absolutely see cloud's been talked about for a very long period of time but when you look at the infrastructure piece of it amazon had the lead and you know had lead for years for for just because of the early entrant being the first you know person in the market Um, microsoft has done a phenomenal job over the last six seven years to scale that business up it became the first and the most important part of Satya, when he came in, what close to what six years ago now, and um, he has done a lot of good work in terms of working with their rivals, making Microsoft more um, open to open source software, Um, and now their cloud portfolio is second to Amazon, and a very close second. It's not a question of before the gap was very wide. Now, if you are looking to you know move any of your applications to the cloud. You can choose one or the other. It not It does. It's not a slam dunk that it has to go to Amazon. And the most recent win or the big, you know, controversial contract is just around that. But you know, Microsoft is is in a great position today.
1: So give us the latest. I saw some news out. I guess yesterday a federal judge temporarily blocked Microsoft from working on a ten billion dollar Pentagon. Cloud computing contract uh, after Amazon, I guess, asked for a delay. So, give us a sense of how material that is, and what's it's, the story?
0: It's more of philosophical about that, uh, you know, um, the the second player beat the first player kind of uh, argument. Because financially, you know, with with the amount of money Microsoft generates per year, you know, a billion dollar billion dollars per year is not you know, financially that moving. But philosophically, it's a very important thing. Um, We go back a few years when Amazon beat IBM to a similar CIA contract. It was all up in there. that Amazon's now up in front running when it comes to IT infrastructure. And, uh, you know, this is similar. There's a lot of politics involved in it because of Jeff Bezos and uh, the president. Ah. Um, So, you know, there is a lot of argument over there. But both, and, you know, our take is, both companies will do really good in cloud. They have really good products, and um, you know the market's large enough for both of them to be, be, be there.
2: So taking a step back, there's sort of an existential question when it comes to the U.S. equity market about how much further tech giants can go when it comes to their share prices rallying. They've led the charge globally, and I'm wondering when you surveil the landscape of the tech giants, are there any clouds? Are there really any kind of, uh, you know, harbingers of, of another time that's less auspicious for these? Or do you feel like it's just gonna keep on going?
0: It's uh, That's a very difficult question because a lot that's of- right. A That's right, uh, that's what- yes. That's
2: right, it's uh, existential, I, yeah, I preface uh, uh, it that way. See, a
0: lot depends on uh, the macro view. If, if the global economy slows down, nothing is sacred at that point. Tech spending, cloud being, you know, a growth area. Yes. But the degree or the rate of growth will actually slow down for all products. So if you look at it, you know, our philosophy, you know, going into 2020, our, our, our thesis, what we should see a slowdown in some of the, you know, even the high growth areas. Um, but it hasn't happened so far now whether it gets pushed off in the middle of the year the elections does it if the virus like there are there are so many macro factors out there from you know weakness in europe weakness in so germany so i take this as a no you no know, it's difficult to say because <laughs> because the 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 rate of growth is still holding up and and that's actually pretty impressive given where we are in the economic cycle
1: all right so microsoft stocks up 75% over the past 12 months is it just the cloud? What's the story here?
0: It It is just the cloud, but actually it's a funny part is for Microsoft, it's not just the public cloud. It's actually what they call the hybrid cloud strategy because what's happening is... The, the, you know, we, we wrote a piece called Cloud 2.0 when it talks about that the next phase of cloud growth is not going to come from the Netflixes of the world, it's going to come from the Disney's of the world that are moving their entire business dig- to a digital platform. So they are the ones who are upgrading it. And guess what? Microsoft is a dominant position in the legacy IT infrastructure. So when people move that, they buy both their on-premise software and they buy their cloud program. So they're actually having what I would call is the, the best of both worlds.
1: Interesting stocks, but such an Nadella is—you know—he's been there six years. It's kind of an unsung, maybe just in my mind, an unsung star of Silicon Valley. You think about—you know—the Bezos of the world. He's being
2: the, sung enough right now. So? He's okay. being sung more. No, you think not? I, I, I do I
0: still haven't come across a CEO going back to even—you know—the days of IBM's turnaround or Lee Iacocca. I think he's done better than any one of them because he has changed the philosophy of the company. He has changed the mindset of the company from. Who cared about Microsoft seven, eight years ago? And now the biggest player in software is growing faster than the software industry. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's pretty good. Paul, Anurag's Valentine is Satya (laughs) Nadella.
1: Yes, exactly. Anurag Rana covers all things technology for Bloomberg Intelligence. We appreciate him coming here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us his thoughts on Microsoft... Well, investors across the globe are trying to figure out the impact of the coronavirus will have on global economic growth. Economists are crunching their numbers. We have our own economist with his own model. Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, joins us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Carl, what are you guys at Bloomberg uh, Economics thinking about right here as it relates to the impact from the coronavirus, maybe on obviously Chinese uh, economic growth, but also global GDP.
5: Absolutely. So as we think about the uh, impact, and I know a lot of people immediately uh, pull out the playbook from SARS in 2003, I don't think that's the best uh, comparison. Uh, China had a much smaller role on the global economy at that time. Uh, and so I think the SARS comparisons run a little thin. Uh, and instead, we can see some better parallels if we look back to the, uh, Thai, uh, the, the flooding in Thailand in 2011, or the uh, Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan, uh, and how those disrupted global supply chains. And I think that gives us a more useful way of thinking about what we're seeing as we hear more and more headlines about, especially in the auto sector, uh, production lines being slowed because they are uh, missing uh, parts and whatnot. Uh, Just to put some numbers around the forecast, uh, our uh, China team has downgraded their Q1 uh, uh, forecast to about 4.5% growth in China. That compares to a running rate of about, you know, six uh, high five uh, type of uh, territory uh, for China. In terms of the U.S. economy, we we have modified our growth numbers to look for more weakness in the first half of the year. Uh, but that is not a coronavirus story. That is actually a Boeing production story. The the, the uh, stoppage of production of the 737 MAX uh, actually holds the potential uh, to move top-line economic growth. So GD- there's very few companies that can actually move the needle on GDP growth uh, Boeing jumbo jets are an expensive item and so in fact the the the, vague, the the volatility around production can impact growth and that's what we're seeing in the first half.
2: Fascinating. There's a question in the economists who we speak with. They say there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. A lot of people say that any growth lost Will be subsequently made up for when people start to go back out and and the virus fears subside, or Boeing gets uh, you know finished with their issues with the 737 Max. What's your take on the vi- on, on the likelihood of a V-shaped recovery?
5: So if we're talking about Boeing production issues, if they get clearance, ramp up production, uh, and fill a bunch of orders, then absolutely you get that V-shaped production, uh, v- V-shaped uh, rebound production. Uh, for the virus story, I'm not so sure that's the case because a lot of spending, especially in service categories, uh, will not be replaced. And so there you know—there certainly will be some pent-up demand. If you need a new phone or a new automobile uh, and you didn't get to buy it because of transportation networks being shut down and whatnot, you're probably going to go buy it relatively soon. So that demand does get pent up. Uh, but if you normally go to the movies five times a month, uh, you're not going ten times next month to make up for uh, the, the uh, you know, missed time. Same with restaurant meals and a lot of stuff like that. Also, uh, there's an income impact. So if we're shutting down the economy, a lot of people who are maybe earning a, an hourly wage as opposed to a salary, uh, they're not getting paid. And so they will have less spending uh, power uh, when uh, when activity does start to bounce back. Doesn't mean, again, that there's not a little bit of pent up uh, activity. You have to buy groceries and whatnot. Uh, but I think that we're looking at lost income, which will actually lower
1: uh, the level of GDP growth for 2020. So Carl, we think when we think about GDP growth 2020, certainly in the US, but certainly around the world as well, we think about the consumer, the strength of the consumer. We had some US retail sales number came out this morning on the surface looked pretty good. What did you take from those? Well, when you say we think about the consumer, we pretty much think
5: only, only bad about bad. the consumer <laughs> uh, because the core, if not sole engine of economic growth for the last quarter, four quarters, 12 quarters, 16 quarters, I could go on, uh, has really been consumer spending. And so as we look at the retail sales numbers today, uh, they're basically consistent with the same type of consumer activity we saw in Q4, uh, which was not great, uh, but it was not terrible either. So it's enough to prop up economic growth in the vicinity of 2% or slightly less. Uh, So consumers are holding up, and certainly, uh, you know, To kind of look at the silver lining of all of this, which is kind of a perverse thing to do, uh, with oil prices coming down as much as they did, uh, we're seeing prices at the pump coming down, Uh, and so this is giving consumers a little bit of an energy dividend in their spending accounts, and we saw that in things like restaurant and bar sales being quite strong. Often that's a give-or-take category. If gas becomes more expensive, people eat out or drink less, uh, and vice versa. And so we saw some signs of that in January. Uh, The gas price decline is going to be much more evident in February, so watch for those discretionary categories uh, to perk up. Where we would be concerned that things are really falling apart uh, is if you saw consumer's sentiment start to pull back. And that is not the case, whether you look at equity markets or whether you look at the preliminary reading from University of Michigan, uh, the surprised expectations to the upside earlier this morning. That's exactly where we wanted to go,
2: right? Coming in at the highest level since 2018. Is this a leading or lagging indicator?
5: Well, it uh, depends, uh, but it can often be a leading indicator heading into economic downturns. If we look at past recessions, uh, you see consumer sentiment roll over uh, before the downturn uh, actually occurs. Now, this could be for two reasons. Uh, Maybe households are very intuitive and they can read the trend in the economy uh, before it actually occurs or maybe the pullback in sentiment actually contributes to enough of a downdraft that it pushes the economy into contraction. Whether it's chicken or egg doesn't really matter, but the important thing is it is a leading indicator of recession, and so you don't see this acceleration uh, going into a downturn. So, again, there's lots of negative headlines out there, but we have to remember with unemployment as low as it's been going all the way back to 1969, uh, wage pressure is not great, but there is some upward trajectory there. Uh, Wage stagnation is a myth. We're seeing wage growth. Uh, consumer spending should be able to hold in at some base level over the course of this year, which means U.S. recession odds still remain relatively low. I put them in the vicinity of about 15 percent.
2: Down from a lot more.
5: Well, it was temporarily was a little bit uh, higher uh, last year, but I was never big into the notion that we were on the cusp of recession for the reasons I just highlighted, low unemployment, wage pressures, and consumer spending power.
2: Cara Gidana. Happy Valentine's Day.
5: And likewise.
2: Thank you. He's
1: sporting the pink shirt today.
2: He is sporting the yep. pink shirt. The curl in his hair. Lovely. <laughs> also- Cara Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us here in our interactive broker studios.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
3: I'm
2: Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.